as we plunge back into the book of 2 Kings this morning, uh, you'll notice that we fast forward a bit from where we were the last few weeks and we land in the latter chapters of 2 Kings today in the period that's known as the late monarchy. And among others, there's a chap called Hezekiah who's a prominent leader from this era. Uh, chapters 18, 19, and 20 are a character study on Hezekiah, and he gets more page time than most, which is the Bible's way of saying pay attention. He gets three whole chapters. The chapters at hand contain representative or snapshot events from his life, and God has caused these events to be recorded for our benefit today. Of course, we can't ponder it all, but we are going to hone in on a few elements from Hezekiah's reign, and as we do this, to put it in a nutshell, we're going to see that Hezekiah is a good king. He brings his people back from the brink of destruction, but he's not good enough. He's a good king, but he's not good enough. That's the appraisal of kings. Let's explore those two aspects in turn. We'll begin there in chapter 18. Would you give your attention again to verses 5 through 8? Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. And he held fast to the Lord, and he did not depart from following him, and he kept the commandments of the Lord that he had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him, and he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from the watchtower to the fortified city." And this is a self-evident commendation. Hezekiah is one of about five kings in the books of First and Second Kings, out of about 40-plus kings total, that gets a thumbs up from God. Uh, that's, that's in sharp contrast, by the way, to his father Ahaz. I call him Ahaz the Awful. He was a deplorable king. Now, verse 6 tells us that Hezekiah, quote, held fast to the Lord. That's a very familiar Hebrew phrase in the book of Kings. It goes, takes us back to Solomon where we started in the summer. Solomon who did not hold fast to the Lord because he held fast to his foreign wives and their idol gods. And as a result, the kingdom was ripped apart. Preston preached on that. Conversely, with Hezekiah holding fast to God, the kingdom enjoys some stabilization. Old enemies are subdued. That's verse 8. The Philistines were kind of Israel's old nemesis always causing problems. They get subdued, subdued. According to the Bible, according to the books of Kings, honoring God before all others, which is what Hezekiah is doing, is not an abstract thing. It's not a sentiment. As Hezekiah demonstrates, it begins by keeping the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. The first of the Ten Commandments. Now, what this entails concretely gets fleshed out in verse 4. Let me read that for you. Hezekiah removed the high places and the bronze pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had been making offerings to it. And it was called Nehushtan. We're getting a more specific sense here of why Hezekiah is regarded as an upstanding king. He's a good king because he's a king who labors for the flourishing of God's people, of his people. Now, this activity, this good kingly activity, is not so much about protecting people from their external enemies as much as protecting them from the enemies within. Let me unpack this. There's a little bit of a backstory you need to hear in order to understand this. If you dip back into chapter 17, we're not going to do that in this series, but let me tell you briefly what you find. You read about the dissolution and demise of the northern kingdom, sometimes called Samaria. 
So by this time in Israelite history, there were two smaller kingdoms and two little dynasties that existed. There's the northern kingdom called Samaria, and the southern kingdom, where Hezekiah is, is called Judah. Now, in terms of infidelity to God, the northern kingdom of Samaria blazes the trail. Right? False worship abounds up there. People worship anything and everything except the God who literally brought them into existence. And that eventually results in pretty severe judgment. The northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria. That's the consequence, Kings tells us, of their systemic compounded idolatry. Alas, before the gangrene of idolatry could be cut off, it spread to the southern kingdom. That's what we read in chapter 17, verse 9. It says this, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that the northern kingdom had introduced. Which means that the kingdom that Hezekiah inherits is a kingdom also on the brink of disaster. If he doesn't deal with the idolatry, the people will not flourish because they'll be unmade. That's not flourishing. They'll be on a crash course towards exile. Hezekiah discerns this peril, this danger, right? And he takes action. He begins by restoring the first commandment, worship of the true God alone. And that translates into several tangible actions, as we saw in verse 4. Let me just break those down briefly. First of all, he removes the high places. What are those? They're mentioned, in fact, condemned throughout the books of Kings. The, these high places, I actually visited one when I was in uh, the modern Israeli state a few years ago. They're hilltop shrines where people went to worship. Hezekiah's father, a real louse of a king, not only tolerated them, but also used them. He went there himself, and in fact, he burned one of his sons, Hezekiah's brother, at one of those high places. He burned him up. And there were probably acts of cultic prostitution that ha happened up there, too. See, this is the big problem with high places. You're never really sure who's being worshipped up there. People, of course, said they were worshipping God, but the things that happened there are things that are never to be associated with God. This, these, this nasty situation is a recurring theme of Israel's life. It starts kind of back in the book of Exodus, chapter 30, 32. Some of you will know this very famous story, infamous story, I should say. It's about the golden calf. That's a, they, they make a calf out of gold. They melt all their rings and jewelry and make a cow out of gold, and they worship it. That's a big no-no. The calf is an idol. They got the idea from Egypt. Now, interesting, if you go and look very carefully at Exodus 32, you'll see that in a desperate attempt to legitimize this apostasy, Aaron, the high priest of the living God, actually tries to say that the cow represents God. Nice try. Something like that's happening at high places. People say they're worshiping God, but it's just the right answer, right? Because there are no scriptures at the high place. The law of God is not at the high place. The only thing at work up there is the human imagination and all of its perversity. And so Hezekiah tears them down. In addition, however, he had to deal with a problem at the temple in Jerusalem itself. Now, the temple was the appropriate place to worship uh, because it had the Bible. Right? It, ha it housed God's Word. And so you couldn't just make up God as you pleased. That's why the temple was the appropriate place to worship. But it didn't just house the Bible. It also had some other things, some things that had become rather dubious by this point. One of them is Nehushtan. Say that with me. Nehushtan. Good. Just actually means bronze serpent in, in, in Hebrew. What is Nehushtan? Well, it's a bronze serpent. It's kind of a, an image. That's a, a, a recreated image of it. I'm actually on Mount Nebor, uh, Nebo in, in Jordan, um, that Moses made about four or five centuries before all of this. 
And you can read about it in Numbers 21 in the Old Testament this afternoon. And um, Nehushtan was associated with a miracle. And so therefore, a miracle that God did. And so originally Nehushtan, the bronze serpent, had some sort of place in the authentic worship of the Lord. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness. Uh, but by 2 Kings 18, something has run afoul. A sharp cutco knife will cut your carrots quickly. But if that knife is used to stab someone, then its proper purpose is violated. That's what's going on with Nehushtan. A symbol of God's past redemptive activity has displaced God himself. The text says that people were burning incense to Nehushtan, not to God. Now, what is that like from God's point of view? Let's try to get into God's shoes if we can for a moment. It's like a husband who buys his wife a set of precious jewelry as an anniversary gift, and the wife is absolutely enamored, and she can't stop gazing at the gift. She's all transfixed with the jewels, and she totally forgets about her husband, the giver. That's what it's like. Nehushtan has to go. Hezekiah shows impressive discernment on this matter, and we need that type of discernment in our lives as well. Why? Because the specter of Nehushtan still hovers. The specter of Nehushtan still hovers. This is what I'm going to say now is very relevant for those of us who are Christians, right? C.S. Lewis really gets this spot on in one of his musings in the Screwtape Letters, an excellent book, by the way. Uh, the letters are written from a senior demon to a junior demon, um, and they offer clever tactics on how to keep a person, a patient, that's how they word it, how to keep a patient distant and disconnected from God. And this is what the senior demon, Screwtape, says. He says, I have known cases where what the patient has called his God was actually located in a crucifix on the wall. Whatever the nature of such a composite option, you must keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not to the person that made him. The most noxious form of idolatry, and it's still around, is what I call the religious or Christianized form. It's when something associated with God takes the place of God himself, and that is what's happening with Nehushtan. Let me tell you about one of the most common ways it still happens in, in our life, my life, your life, and in our culture, right? It happens when we take the name associated with God, the name of Jesus, and actually disconnect it from the true identity of Jesus. We say we follow Jesus, but we don't actually know Jesus, so we aren't really following him. We have an idea of Jesus that has supplanted the real thing. That is exactly what happens in Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Right? Ricky Bobby likes to, his Jesus is baby Jesus, tiny Jesus, right? That's how he likes to imagine Jesus. So when he prays, he says, dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn, infant, baby Jesus. And his best buddy, Cal, likes to think of Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too, right? And Ricky's son likes to imagine Jesus as a ninja fighting off an evil samurai because that's what he's into. They're worshiping the bronze serpent. We all do it. We take something associated with God, even the name Jesus, and we make it into a false God. Because what that name might mean to us is not what it means according to the Bible. Is this registering. Hezekiah is a good king because he purges idolatry from the land in its explicit forms, high places, and subtle forms, Nehushtan. And to echo what I said earlier, it's, all this is good. It's called good by the books of kings, by God, because it promotes the flourishing of God's people. And not just flourishing in the sense of avoiding punitive punishment for idolatry, uh, which is what happened, of course, in chapter 17, right? You get annihilated. You can't flourish. 
On the one hand, Kings makes it really clear, enough idolatry over many, many generations will uh, elicit God's judgment. It's an offense to God's honor. It's like having an affair. It really strains the relationship, and, and it may ruin it. That's what it's like. But idolatry spoils human flourishing in another sense, too. If you've been dozing off, now's a really good time to come back to us, because this is one of the most important things that we get from the Scripture today. You need to see that idolatry in the Old Testament is not just about bowing down to a little statue. At a more fundamental level, this is how idolatry can be defined. A state of heart, a way of life, in which we take the love, trust, and adoration that belong to God and place them on other and lesser gods. That's what idolatry really is. And why is that problematic? Let me tell you. You have... To get this, you have to remember what the Bible says about ourselves. It tells us that God is our home and our original desire, that he's our final goal and our delight along the way. Now, for all of us, that can get obscured at times. And our, but our deepest desire, says the Bible, is a desire to rest in God's love and delight and goodness. That's why G.K. Chesterton once quipped that a man walking, knocking on the door of a brothel is actually knocking for God. That can be true for a woman, too. So think of the things you long for, the things you most desire. The Bible says, the things that we most long for and desire, the Bible says they are shadows of our deepest yearnings. God knows this. That's why the Bible is just a story, a report, and a story of God coming into the world to satisfy our deepest longings and desires with himself because we were made for him. Idolatry is when we lose sight of that. It's the equivalent of a fish trying to exist and flourish outside of water. Right? A fish could get confused and thinks it wants to live on the beach, but it can't. If it lives on the beach, it will suffocate and wither because it wasn't made for land, it was made for water. Idolatry is like that. It's estrangement from God in whom we were created to live and move and have our being. That's what the Bible says. The Bible also tells us, and you can read about this starting in Genesis chapter 3, way at the beginning, that evil has been conspiring to blind us to this shared truth about our existence, to make fish think that they can live on the sand. But God has been steadfastly laboring to overcome that darkness. That's why He rescued and redeemed Israel. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. According to the Old Testament, He did that for two reasons. Number one, because He loved Israel. But number two, because He also loved the world. And he wanted to extend that rescuing love to all humanity through Israel. See, Israel is supposed to be a light to the nation, supposed to show the world what real love looks like, sacrificing for your children, not sacrificing your children, protecting the vulnerable, not exploiting them, sharing, not hoarding, forgiving, not doing vengeance. Sadly, when God's people chase after idols, they lose their distinctness and calling. We fail to attain our purpose. It's like a watch that doesn't keep time anymore. Its, its purpose is, is not, it's, it's expired. That's not flourishing. That's not flourishing. That's what's going on in these chapters of 2 Kings. When Israel abandons God, it becomes little more than a perverse mirror of the surrounding cultures. And the same is true for us. And based on Israel's calling, based on the whole reason God intervened and called these people, that means that when Israel is not following God, is not mirroring God, then Israel has a false existence, utterly inauthentic. Instead of looking more and more like God in terms of character, desires, way of life, Israel starts looking more and more like their idols. Scholars point out that this is the, 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 the message communicated through the ironic twist of, for 2 Kings chapter 17. 
the people of the northern kingdom had started worshiping other gods, including the idol gods of Assyria. I suspect they thought that that type of adaptation and accommodation would be good for them geopolitically, strategically. Well, it wasn't. What actually happened was that they became Assyrian. They got gobbled up by the regional superpower. How's that for coming to look like your idol god? That's not flourishing, and that wasn't good for the world. Believe me, Assyria is not the desire of the nations. When we take all of this into account, we begin to see why Hezekiah is called a good king. He's protecting people, not just from the external enemies, but from the spiritual compromises internally that draw them into an utterly inauthentic existence, an existence that defies what we were created for. So he's a leader who's putting fish back in water. God is pleased. Hezekiah is a good king. B-U-T. But you knew it was coming. While he's good, he's not good enough. That's the point of chapter 20. This chapter is from the latter portion of Hezekiah's life, the last quarter or so. And uh, among other things, it shows us, I just want to note this, that the biblical portrayal of people, contrary to certain popular impressions, is not 2D. Uh, it's not simplistic, good or bad, black and white, right? There's no hero worship in the Bible. This person's all good, that person's all bad. There's no hero worship, no demonization, right? The Bible is actually a story of how God works in spite of human beings who are all mixed bags. Even humans who have some relationship with God, He works in spite of them to bring beauty and, and harmony back to creation where it's lacking, in our lives where it's lacking, right? A lot of people in the world, let me give you an example. A lot of people in the world revere, in this part of the world, revere Winston Churchill, right? We like Winston Churchill, right? And there are good reasons for that. But listen to this, biographer Richard Toy says, Winston Churchill is rightly remembered for leading Britain through her finest hour. But what if he also led the country through her most shameful hour? Go read the biography to find out how. Here's the point. This man who gave us some of the most poetic language about freedom, human freedom, and tremendously poetic, he also said this, quote, Gandhiism, with reference to Gandhi and India and the British Raj, he said, Gandhiism and all it stands for will sooner or later have to be grappled with and finally crushed. Winston Churchill. By the way, Gandhi was also a great man, but he had a dark side too. You can Google that yourself, though. That's our world. People are mixed bags. We're gray. We know this, but sometimes we slide into hero worship. The Bible's not going to let us do that. It's not 2D. It's 3D. People are 3D. They're complex. And that is what we get here in 2 Kings chapter 20. Hezekiah is a good king, but not good enough. Look with me at chapter 20, verses 12 through 13. At that time, Merodach Baladan, what a name, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for they heard that he had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all the treasure in the house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the oil, his armory, and all that was in the storehouses. And there was nothing in his house or in his realm that he did not show them. Hmm, he thinks there's a problem here. Some foreign viceroys have arrived. Beware the Babylonians, even when they come with chicken soup and ginger ale. One commentator has this to say, Despite the raised hopes that follow and surround Hezekiah, there is a sense of foreboding that pulses throughout these chapters like a drumbeat. What's going on in this incident? This is not innocent. Verse 13 has the clues. You see that the word welcomed? That's a Hebrew word. It actually means heard, and sometimes, like in Isaiah 39, it's translated rejoice. Hezekiah hears and rejoices, but no longer in God. He's giving his attention to Babylon. Right? The, the tour of the treasury that happens here, that's the first date. He wants to get in bed with these people. 
they're going to be the rising regional superpower, right? He's enticing them. He's flaunting all of his stuff. They're looking at his LinkedIn profile. That's what's going on here. He's basically saying, look what I have. Look what I can bring to the table. Look at all this treasure that I can offer for protection against Assyria. That's what he's doing. He's hardly the first Israelite king to do that, right? A lot of his predecessors used their wealth in the same way, but that is a big no-no with God. It's like having a spiritual affair. You can't lean on God and Babylon, and that is what, precisely what Hezekiah is trying to do. He's hedging his bets. But why? That's the big question. I mean, this is a guy who's seen God's extraordinary power play out in all sorts of sensational ways in chapters 18 and 19. Uh, in chapter 19, God saves Hezekiah and the whole kingdom from annihilation by the Assyrians, and they don't even have to lift a finger. Go read about that this afternoon. In chapter 20, Hezekiah gets really sick. He's got a boil that, that's threatening his life, and he prays a beautiful prayer, and uh, God extends his life by 15 years. But now, in the middle of chapter 20, he's decided to tie his wa horse wagon to a different horse. He's decided to tie his wagon to a different horse. Why? He's trying to organize his existence and salvation around Babylon, not God, right? He's trying to take charge himself rather than let God take charge. Why? That's the big question. And I think the answer is this, based on the, the whole of the, the Scripture in this area. Because the life of faith, steadfast commitment to God is difficult. You can never just rest on your laurels. You can never just enjoy that feeling, as false as it is, of just being in control. And we like that feeling, and kings like it even more. But God says it's got to go because it's a delusion, and it actually creates a lot of problems. I think that's what's going on with Hezekiah. At one level, things are really well for him, better than they've been in decades. The kingdom's intact. His health is good. Uh, the nation's spiritual health is recovering. But if you read all the chapters, you see that all that happens amidst a lot of great difficulties and, and hard situations, which demand that he is constantly trusting and waiting on the Lord. And that's his real struggle, having to constantly trust and wait on God, having to find peace in God's character and past track record rather than knowing how things are going to work out. Well, we can relate to that, can't we? At least I can. There is something inside of Hezekiah, something in all of us that resists that with tremendous fervor. That's why Hezekiah is tempted to take things into his own hands so that his own agenda can play out according to his own timetable. And reflecting on this whole state of affairs, something else that G.K. Chesterton said came to my mind. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. See, trusting in God at all times and in every way is chiefly difficult because we're addicted to being in control at least a feeling in control. And so we make deals with the Babylonians. Of course, God sees this, so he sends the prophet Isaiah to have a hard counseling session with King Hezekiah. Let's read about that. Isaiah shows up and he said, what do those men say? And where did they come? He already knew the answer, of course, I think. And Hezekiah said, they came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, well, have they seen your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in the house, and there's nothing in my storehouses that I didn't show them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and all that your fathers have stored up will be carried into Babylon. Nothing will be left. And some of your own sons, uh, the people coming from you, whom you will father, will be taken away and they will be made eunuchs uh, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Another prophet, Jeremiah, sums up what's going on here very well. He says this, Cursed is the person who trusts in man and who makes the flesh his strength 
who turns his heart away from the Lord. That's what's going on with Hezekiah. He's putting Israel on the road to Babylon, but not the way he thinks. And Isaiah basically says, okay, you want to worship Babylon? Then you'll eventually become Babylonian. You'll get conquered and absorbed, and that's what eventually happens. That's a prophetic word. But it's also a delayed judgment. You see, because even while God is angry, God is also astoundingly merciful. And so there's a delay. And what's that delay about? It's about creating a space for repentance. There's always a space for this. God's turning the clock back for Hezekiah. He's giving a chance to reorganize his core loyalties. God's all, God does this all the time. But sadly, in Hezekiah's case, as we'll see, it doesn't make much of a difference. It's like, it's like he, got, he got treated for cancer and he got cured, but then he takes up smoking again. Look at verse 19, Hezekiah's response. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Really? Does that sound like a good word to anyone in here? Is it just... Just Hezekiah, not, doesn't seem like a good word to me. For he thought in his mind, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Done, done, done. Commentator Ian Proven says that King Hezekiah is, quote, oddly unmoved by Isaiah's warning, and his response displays a certain selfishness. He, he's just been told that some of his sons, his not-too-distant descendants, maybe grandsons or what have you, are going to be made eunuchs. And he's rather blasé about it. I hope my dad wouldn't be that blasé if he got that message about me. <laughs> Kings is showing us that the faith-filled courage of young Hezekiah has drained out. He's become resigned, fatalistic. He's forgotten the power of prayer that he learned so amazingly in chapter 19. There are no more great prayers in Kings after chapter 19. He doesn't show any sign of repentance here. He gives some lip speak to Isaiah's prophecy, but in his heart... He's just relieved that the rest of his days will be lived in relative comfort. That's appalling. It's appalling because in Israel, kings aren't supposed to just be people who receive the, uh, the spiritual inheritance and govern well. They're also supposed to be people who lay the groundwork for future generations, who make sure that the spiritual atmosphere is intact for the people who come next. We can relate to that, Vancouverites, spiritual atmosphere. That's what Hezekiah should have done. But in his final years, he, he should have spent himself in service to God and to God's people for their true flourishing, but he doesn't. Isn't that a familiar story in this world of ours? Instead, he spends his final days in comfort while his people live on borrowed time. How do we know? The answer is in the first few verses of chapter 21 on the other side. We know because Prince, King Hezekiah's son, Prince Manasseh, is arguably the worst king in the history of Israel. The worst. He's a bit like Kylo Ren. He takes more after his grandfather than his more decent father. Why does that happen? Why is Manasseh the worst king? And he reigns for 55 years. Why is, that, why is he the worst king? Because Hezekiah checked out. He checked out from the Lord, and as a result, he checked out from the type of fathering that should have been a responsibility and act of service as the king. Hezekiah is good, but he's not good enough. And within a few years of his death, the kingdom is worse than it was when he started. He led his people back from the brink, but only for a moment. Now, I recognize this is a downer, and you probably want something more upbeat for the Christmas season, but guess what? It's not Christmas yet. And it's only as the night gets darker that the stars get brighter, or should I say the star. 
You see, the story of God's efforts to love and to liberate and to lead his people and to do that for everybody in this world, it doesn't end with Hezekiah. This little anticlimax isn't the end. There's more to come. There's what the French call a denouement, a final resolution, a release of tension. That's how it is with God because God refuses to check out and to let us ruin ourselves. Chapter 20 faintly foretells of how this comes to fruition. Gaze again at verses 13 and 14. There's Hezekiah grandstanding all of his treasure in gold, displaying everything that's most precious to him in order to obtain security and salvation to ensure his future, his protection. Of course, God sees all of this, as pathetic as it is, but out of pity and out of love, God eventually answers, and he answers in kind in a way, in a mind-blowing manner. That's what the New Testament tells us. He tells us about another one of King David's descendants, one of Hezekiah's descendants, an heir, but the one who's different from all the rest. St. Paul talks about him in Romans chapter 8, and this is what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Those words are about Jesus Christ, and Paul is simply saying in that moment, uh, many others as well, that Jesus Christ is that which is most precious to God. Not the most precious thing in a bank or a kingdom or even in the world, the, the greatest treasure in the universe. That is what Paul is saying. In his presence on earth, his coming to us, what God is doing there is putting his most precious and valuable thing on display. A star whose brightness makes all the gold and silver in this world look like charcoal. Christmas is when we remember his arrival. It's when we witness God doing the same thing that Hezekiah did in those few verses, saying, look at this. Look at my treasure. It's for you. Your salvation is here. Your security, your liberation, your freedom is with this one. And this one, he's not like Hezekiah. He never broke faith with God. He never succumbed to the allures of comfort. He was tempted, but he didn't secretly indulge his own well-being before all else. And friends, he held nothing back because eventually he spent himself in utter entirety hanging on a Roman cross to lead us all back from the various brinks of disaster in our lives. Not just now, but forever. Not just for the people of his time, but for all the people who would come after. That's real treasure. On another occasion, it made the prophet Isaiah sing, and I like his words. This is what he says, Behold our God. To whom will you liken him? Or what likeness will you compare him? Go up to a mountain and declare the good news. That's the gospel. Have you heard it? It's the offer of a love that will not betray you, dismay or enslave you, but will set you free, more like the person that you were created by God to be. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.